Welcome to Capital Considerations, the podcast that takes complex ideas from the investment world and makes them accessible to everyone. I'm your host, Tony Roth, Chief Investment Officer of Wilmington Trust. Today, we're exploring one of the key themes from our 2021 capital markets forecast, Pivoting the Business, Who Will Be Left Standing, which focuses on the evolution and future outlook of industries in the wake of COVID-19. Today, we are focusing on the impacts COVID has had on the retail industry, everything from big box retailers, mom and pop shops, malls, and online shopping. Joining me is Mark Matthews, the Vice President of Research, Development, and Industry Analysis at the National Retail Federation. Mark joined the NFR in 2015 and has decades of experience in market-based research across public and private equity. Mark, thank you so much for being here today. It's my pleasure, Tony. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited for the topic, how the retail industry is faring in light of COVID. Mark, when I think about retail, it's hard for me to think about anything initially, but the fact that when this whole pandemic started, there were places that I could go like CVS or the drugstore, other drugstores or the grocery store, but most places I couldn't go. And I I had to learn that CVS actually had a very small hardware department where I could buy um, some basic things like a hammer and a wrench that I couldn't get at a hardware store. And I think that it had something to do with what the government considered to be essential to our lives versus not essential. So when you think about how the retail space is doing, is that distinction still an important one? Uh, and how retail has fared, because we had so many months where the non-essential was in fact shut down. And if in fact this pandemic picks up again, which seems to be the case, we may end up back in that type of arena. So maybe that's the place to start. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, as the retail industry, we're all hoping that we don't go back to those days uh, because a large proportion of, of retailers were, were shut down in, in many cases arbitrarily because honestly it, it's really a complex definition as to what's essential and what isn't essential and that varied by state to state but uh, what it created was if, essentially an artificial distinction between uh, the two areas of retail so the essential businesses had a lot of success and the non-essential ones had to close their doors. And it's important to remember that for retail, 85% of, uh, of sales happen in store. Uh, you know, digital is growing, but stores still matter uh, a lot for this industry. So the challenge for those retailers who, uh, who had to close those doors for, for, for many months was, was profound. And, you know, when you look at the numbers, Essential retailers were growing at, you know, low double digit numbers, 10%, 11% year over year throughout this crisis. Non-essential retailers, you know, businesses like apparel, they saw their sales drop 60% in, in April and it's getting better. Uh, they're coming back, you know, now that we have stores open, we see those numbers getting stronger, uh, but still they've got a long way to go to to come back. So overall, when you look at the retail industry, uh, the numbers have been very, very strong this year versus last year. But that is driven in large part by the essential businesses. And those sectors are bigger than the non-essential sectors. And when you think about the impact that the different programs that the government had, PPP and so on, 
that I would imagine. So is it mainly the non-essential retail segments that were able to avail themselves of the PPP? And is it them that maybe, even if they are back open now, maybe hurting in the absence of the extension of the PPP? How is that factor in? Absolutely. It was the essential businesses. And you have to think that that's good for everybody, right? If you are able to furlough your workers and still be able to pay them while your doors are closed, that's a great thing. But uh, it's not just about the PPP. The stimulus is important too. Providing the large groups of people that uh, that we saw you know, become unemployed or at least temporarily unemployed as, as they were defined by the BLS, giving them some money that they could spend. And we saw lower-income houses, households using that money, utilizing it and spending it. Uh, and that, to an extent, helped support the uh, the retail market during the, uh, the early months of the pandemic. One of the things that I find to be so interesting, as a, although I'm not a, a trained economist, um, I like to consider myself to be a, a macroeconomic thinker to some degree, is that our economy is, t- we, o- we often talk about the fact that our economy is two-thirds consumers' outlays consumer spending. But of that two-thirds, 60% of it is services and only 40% of it are goods. We talk about retail, it's primarily goods we're talking about. And there's actually been a really interesting effect that the pandemic has had, which is most services are by definition delivered in person. It could be getting your hair cut. It could be many other things, obviously. Um, And when those are shut down, um, travel, leisure, et cetera, there's a lot of extra dollars in people's wallets to go to retail. And so putting aside the distinction between essential and non-essential, and unfortunately the non-essential haven't done as well, overall, there's actually been a lot more money flowing into retail because we don't know what else to do with ourselves than buy stuff because we can't travel around and um, consume other kinds of services. Do I have it right? Yeah, that, that's absolutely right on the money, Jenny. Uh, if you look at uh, the, the difference in personal consumption uh, between February and, and August is the most recent data that we have. If you look at spending on services, that's down 7.4%, whereas spending on durable goods was up 12% over the same period and spending on non-durable goods was up 2.3% over the same period. So we've definitely seen a shift. The consumer has had more money in their pockets and they've been spending that money on on retail. And uh, if we look at retail sales for the first nine months of this year, we are up 5.8% versus last year. And that's despite the pandemic, despite the big contractions we saw in in April and, uh, and May. So that's a really, really strong number. You know, to contextualize it, over the last five years, the average retail sales growth in what has been a really strong economy was 3.8%. We're at 5.8% right now. So there has been absolutely a, a, a transfer of spending from services into the, the goods economy. And that's continuing. So when you think about, for example, what you expect for the holiday season, Santa Claus could be pretty busy this year. Yeah, we certainly hope so. And we've seen a lot of uh, people coming out with uh, some really, really strong estimates. Uh, There was one released uh, a couple of days ago uh, calling for a 9% uh, increase in holiday sales this year. That's unheard of. Uh, And part of that is because of this shift. People aren't going to be traveling as much this year. People haven't been going on holidays uh, and there is money being saved. 
when you think about uh, the deleveraging that the consumer has able been able to do, the increased savings that they've been able to make by you know staying at home, not going out uh, to movies, not going to theme parks, not going on vacations, they're they're particularly among higher income households. Uh, they've been able to save a lot of money, and some of that money is is clearly being uh, redirected uh, at uh, at retail. You know, another aspect of the savings that we've seen is that the augmentation of unemployment insurance due to the pandemic has enabled even lower income households to save more than they historically have been able to. In many cases, they've received more in unemployment insurance than they would have if they were working. And now, because the fiscal support ended in the summer, some of those savings for the lower income households has been depleted, but even there, we're seeing higher savings levels than what we have seen historically as you go into the, the latter parts of the year. That's right. Uh, saving rates are, are, are way up. They've been falling a little bit. We're still at 50-year highs in terms of uh, saving. But uh, you bring up an interesting point there, Tony. Uh, when you look at low-income versus high-income spending, so overall, we've seen a decrease in consumer spending of about 7.3%. For low-income households, that's only down 4%. So low-income households have continued to spend at close to pre-pandemic levels. The stimulus money that they've been receiving, uh, the unemployment benefits, uh, those are being spent. It's the high-income earners. They have decreased spending by 10.6% uh, during the pandemic. And the sense is that uh, they've got a lot of dry powder heading into uh, to that to the holidays. So I think some of the the rationale that we see for really really positive holiday sales outlooks is the fact that in high income households, there's a lot of money that uh, that, that people have the ability to spend. Now the question is, are are they going to come out and spend it? Right. Well, one of the dynamics that I think is really fascinating also to ask about is the supply side of things because prior to the pandemic, there was all this focus in the previous year or so around the trade dispute with China and what impacts that might have on the supply side of things with tariffs and such. And then when the pandemic first started, it's sometimes even hard to remember this, but all the factories in China were shut down initially. Uh, now those have, of course, largely reopened in full. And I wonder whether there is a risk that will actually run out of, particularly in, a, in an economy that we think of as a just-in-time manufacturing economy, that will run out of many of the things that, not just the toilet paper and the wipes, um, but maybe many of the durable goods or the bigger price tag items that people may want to consume for Christmas. What are your thoughts around that concern? I think that's exactly right. One of the concerning things is that we're seeing case levels rise uh, dramatically now again. So we all remember the runs that we had on these uh, these goods in the early part of the pandemic uh, and how you couldn't get toilet paper. And to some extent, you still struggle to get wipes. But uh, yeah, you know, one of the things that we've seen happening during this pandemic, everybody's staying at home, uh, which means that they're spending money, first of all, on, on beautifying their homes, but they're also using things in the household much more. Uh, the, the the dishwasher is being run a lot more frequently. The oven's on all the time. You know, people are cooking more at home because they haven't been going out to the restaurants. And, and that's some of the demand that you see in the grocery sector. And, and that's why they're posting such good numbers. But what it means is that 
a lot of people don't have brand new appliances at home. So a lot of those have been, uh, been, you know, wearing out and there's a lot of demand now and, uh, supply is an issue. As you stated, uh, you know, there are supply chain issues. So, you know, your point on just-in-time manufacturing is just right. There is not a lot of flexibility in terms of manufacturers to up the, uh, the, the supply of these goods. So when demand spikes happen, uh, there's a challenge filling some of these, uh, these gaps. I read an article yesterday in the Washington Post about this grand bookstore in New York. Very story bookshop that I read in the article. There used to be 40 bookshops like this in the area. Book Row, Bookstore Row was called. And the Strand is the only one that survives today. What's so interesting about it is that we all think about Amazon and e-commerce taking over and eating the lunch of all of retail. Well, Amazon started as a bookseller, really, right? Just selling yeah. books. So the Strand still exists. And they were at a very precarious moment. No one was coming in. And they didn't want to lay off their workers. And they put out an appeal online and they had 25,000 orders came, come in over a weekend. They usually have 300 per weekend. And it sort of saved them. In thinking about our conversation today, that we really need to focus on that dynamic between e-commerce and retail. Because e-commerce seems to be really eating the lunch of most of retail. And that whole trend seems to be just accelerating and accelerating with the pandemic. Why would you go into a store if you can get it? shipped to you in UPS or FedEx, would really be fascinated to hear how that dynamic fits in your mind. Or are we going to just buy everything online in another five or 10 years? I think people have been uh, predicting e-commerce taking over uh, for, for some time now, and we're still nowhere near there yet. Uh, you know, e- e-commerce, you know, depending on how you measure it, you know, you can play with the numerator and you can play with the the denominator, but uh, somewhere between fifteen to twenty percent of uh, of sales happen uh, via digital transactions. But I think we're going to have to eventually start getting away from this notion that they're two different things. When we call a dis- digital transaction not retail, well, that's retail. Honestly, if you close every store in America, people have to shift online, and the retailers would still be doing that business. So. I think as we move more to fulfillment methodology, methodologies such as you know buy online, pick up in store, and, and curbside pickup, you know it gets harder and harder to determine what is an online tra- transaction versus an in-store transaction. Uh, so you know, in a way, the the, the nature of the the store is changing, and our ability to determine what is a digital transaction versus an in-store transaction is is, is just going away. I can tell you that uh, retailers are, are happy to have your business irrespective of the channel. So when you think about this phenomenon of e-commerce, and you just said that it's hard to tell sometimes what a digital transaction is versus a bricks and mortar transaction. Do you see the adoption of e-commerce by traditional bricks and mortar retail as part of their survival strategy? I think there almost is no sort of pure play retail out there anymore. Everybody is, uh, is both. The former pure play uh, online retailers now have stores. Former bricks and mortar retailers uh, sell online now. And, and some of the fastest growing online businesses are from those traditional retailers. Those targets and, and those Walmarts of the, the world 
particularly through, through this pandemic, have been growing online sales by triple-digit numbers. So there is some uh, some pretty profound growth there. Like I said, I spend uh, a lot of time looking at the data and talking to the Bureau of Labor Statistics and the Census Bureau who, who collect a lot of this data. And honestly, it would not surprise me if 10 years from now, people just got away from distinguishing between the two. Because if I'm Walmart, a transaction is a transaction is a transaction. I care less and less as time moves on as to whether it was purchased online, picked up in store, bought in store. It is mattering less and less. And you know, the, the important thing here is the consumer has the power, right? It used to be that your shopping universe was the footprint where you could drive within 20 to 30 minutes. Now, you know, your your shopping universe is, is, is essentially the world. And retailers have to accept that that's the reality moving forward and begin to, uh, to cater c- to consumers and, and offer transaction methodologies that, uh, that meet the way that we live our lives nowadays. I think it's important to recognize that small businesses today don't have to build their own e-commerce platform. If you look at Walmart, if you look at Amazon, they're marketplaces. They have many, many small retailers selling their goods through those platforms. Then you have platforms like Etsy and and eBay that allow really, really small businesses to uh, to go out and reach an incredibly broad audience. Uh, and and they don't have to do a lot of the work there. They, they have to pay some of their profits there, but uh, it gives them global footprint in many cases rather than just a, a local one. Yeah, and the, the benefit is not just to the local consumer, the benefit is to the global consumer, especially when local mom and pop shops tend to have more unique or specialized or stylized kinds of, of goods to sell in many cases. Well, it sounds like there's more competition at every level, right? Online, in person, better pricing, better product, better transparency. Certainly one of the phenomena of retail that I find most fascinating is the ability through the internet and Google to be able to compare shop, if you will, not just for price, but for also competitive products at any moment by pulling out your phone. And I think that in and of itself makes retail in any channel a more satisfying experience. Yeah. One of the things that modern retailers have to deal with is if you go into a store and they don't have what you're looking for, one of the first reactions is to to reach for that phone uh, and, and see if you can find it on Amazon or, or see if you can find it somewhere else. The ability for, for retailers to be able to tell consumers what's in stock and have an accurate picture of what's in stock so the consumer is able to go in there knowing that the store is going to have what uh, what they need there's also a you know employee aspect to this retailers are focusing on on training their employees so you don't lose that sale because if somebody can't find what they want in your particular store but you've got a store two miles away that has inventory uh, the first thing you need to do is make sure you don't lose that customer. Retailers are getting better and better at uh, being able to tell that customer, well, look, we don't have it right now, but we can get it for you tomorrow and you can come pick it up. Or you can go to our sister store two miles away and they've got it in stock. So the last thing you want to do is have that customer jump on their smartphone and uh, and buy it through another vendor. 
What I want to do is focus the conversation a bit in on the different kinds of retail within the physical or brick or mortar, because it's not monolithic, right? You have the big, huge Home Depots and Lowe's, Walmarts and Targets, but then you have the mom and pop stores that seem to be a endangered species. Are they at risk because they don't have the capital to build their own website or to build a competitive website or to be able to stock the kind of choice that the consumer wants to see when they walk into a store? It sounds like a lot of what you're describing is that some of these big multinational corporations like a Walmart and a Target, they may be able to compete with Amazon. But where does that leave the, again, the the Main Street store in in the equation? It's a great point. It's definitely a challenge. And, and, and you do see the big, big retailers that are able to make those technological investments are, are the ones that are garnering market share in, in the digital space. I think the thing to remember is that the, the fundamentals of retail haven't really changed over the years. If you have the right product at the right price and you give the consumer the experience that they want, then you're probably going to do okay. I think we have to recognize that consumers don't all buy for exactly the same reason. Consumers buy for for many, many different reasons. We see a lot of mom and pop shops that are that are growing up that have an ethos attached to their brand where they are supporting causes that may resonate with a consumer. We also see consumers recognizing how valuable it is to have a thriving retail community in their area. I think there there is a recon, recognition that small business is, is, is incredibly important and, and we want to support those businesses. And we've seen growing number of sales each year on Small Business Saturday. So I think there is a recognition amongst the consumer that this is something that they want to support. But uh, also... We have to understand that sometimes we don't just want, you know, an impersonal transaction online. Sometimes retail shopping is is about the experience. It's about right. going out with your family. Uh, it's about uh, going into a store that has something different, something unique, uh, sure. and not necessarily going into a big store that has the same format across 500 locations across the U.S. So I think there's a multiplicity of ways to appeal to the consumer. And like I said at the outset, if the retailer gets that right, I don't think it matters so much if you're a mom and pop shop. As long as you resonate with the the clientele, those people who are in your area, you should do okay. Well, one of the things that also that I think about is being very introspective here. Personally, I'm a very impulsive person, but I'm also even more so impatient. And so... I can be impulsive and buy something on Amazon or on the web, but then I have to wait. I can go out and jump in my car and drive five minutes. As long as that retail outlet is in a good location, the mom and pop store, I can just pull right into the parking lot and go run and buy whatever I want. And I can't get that same immediate gratification online. I don't know if that makes a difference for a lot of people, but it certainly does for me. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we, we see that uh, when we pull consumers, we see a recognition that, you know, small businesses in your area are part of the fabric of your community. And in many cases, these are your neighbors that are that are running these businesses. So I think there's a there's absolutely a tendency to, to support these businesses. But also there are trust levels. And again, 
when we ask consumers about it, uh, they are more trusting of the smaller businesses to be looking after their health concerns in a pandemic like this. Many of these businesses are being run by the owner themselves. They trust that uh, that they're taking the, the the proper precautions to to look after their health. So yeah, I think there there are a lot of different factors that, uh, that that come into play when we when we make those decisions to to go out and buy something. So, Mark, one area within retail that we that we have to touch on, we've got to talk about the American Mall. When I was a kid, I went to the mall to go to the arcade. And I have a daughter now that's very aggrieved that she can't go to the mall because she's 14 and that's where her friends hang out. I wonder about the truly an endangered species, because not only do you have the problems with COVID in the malls, but you also have sort of the anchor tenants are all going, not all going, I exaggerate, but so many of them are going bankrupt because they're department stores, et cetera. What is the future? What is the outlook for the mall? I think it's uh, it's certainly a, a challenging position to, to be in. I think when you look at the numbers, many of the mall closures that we heard about aren't the the bigger, newer malls. Many of them are, you know, the what we call the B and C malls, the, the smaller malls. They're built in the '60s and '70s, and they they don't necessarily have the uh, the amenities that a lot of people look for in a modern day mall. Most of the new malls that are being built now are are open air and, and multi use. You have commercial mixed with retail. Uh, you have outdoor spaces that can be enjoyed. I think maybe in some cases a little bit too much has been read into the demise of the mall because. You know, in some cases, many of these malls closed because, frankly, demographics have shifted over, over the last 30 or 40 years. You can't move the mall, but people move uh, and, and job situations in those areas change. You may have had a big box store open nearby. There, there's more competition. There are still plenty of uh, of thriving malls out there. You know, I've got one near me uh, that prior to this pandemic was uh, busy all the time. Now, the pandemic has certainly made things a little bit more challenging, but one of the trends we saw leading into this is that uh, you are seeing a, a shift in the type of tenant that you find in these places. So it's not just retail. Maybe it's not just about that anchor tenant at each end of the mall. You're seeing more services being offered in these places. You're seeing gyms, you're seeing restaurants. I think that that's appealing. Certainly when we talk to millennials, when they go to the mall, it's not just about shopping. It's about a lifestyle experience. So I think in the future, more successful malls are going to have that format. It's going to be much more of a mixed experience. It's more likely to be outdoors and it's not going to be, you know, the mall that we knew from 40 or 50 years ago. Let me ask you one final question, which is sort of brings us full circle to where we started, Mark around essential versus non-essential. And the reason that I feel the need to come back to that topic is that I feel like there's a real risk that we're going to see some closures in the U.S. on a, on a, on a decent scale. We, throughout this entire pandemic, have followed Europe by around 30 to 60 days. And we're now seeing serious closures around Europe again. And I'm wondering whether or not we go back to the same type of situation later this fall into the winter um, and whether that affects whether a lot of these smaller places have the resilience to make it through 
And is there any advice that you would give a retail owner as they sort of stare down the barrel of that gun again, potentially? We're certainly hopeful that we aren't going to see the, the widespread closures that, uh, that we experienced. But I think what we've learned uh, during this pandemic is that it is possible to shop safely. You can go into stores and as long as both the store and the consumer is taking adequate precautions, we can all make it work. So I don't know if there's this need to, to shut down swaths of the, the economy because that's not going to be good for anybody, to, to be frank. Uh, now, in, in terms of closures, definitely concerns there. You know, at the larger end, I've looked at the numbers. We're at about 40. Then uh, this is at a corporate level. You know, we're about 47 bankruptcies this year uh, versus about 32 last year. So we're higher than where we were. But when you look at the companies that, that are struggling, there were some under, underlying issues. They were suffering coming into the crisis. Uh, in, in many cases, uh, they had too much debt on their books and, and just weren't able to make it through. And in some way, I think this crisis has has pulled future bankruptcies you know, companies that were headed towards the cliff and essentially pushed them off the cliff uh, and, and made it difficult for them to survive. So, yeah, absolutely. There are challenges for, for many retailers, but uh, in terms of corporate bank bankruptcies, we're at about 10% of the levels that we saw in, uh, in 2008 and 2009. So it's well below that. And the numbers are dropping. They're slowing down. You know, we saw many more uh, increases during uh, March, April, May. Knock on wood here, but uh, the, those numbers seem to be slowing. And if we are able to keep the economy up and running, we know the consumer has firepower. If the consumer is out there spending and the doors are open, uh, then, you know, I think it's going to be positive. Great. Well, it's great to end on a positive note, Mark. As I always do for each of our episodes, let me just summarize what I think are the three key takeaways from our conversation today. The first I would say is that while COVID has been a challenge for the entire global and American economy, and while certainly we have to be a bit nuanced and not overly generalized when we think about the retail industry, because the non-essential retail shops and services have had a tougher time of it than the essential ones, overall, it's been really a very eye-opening and, and almost stunningly positive period for retail. And that's because of the high savings rate, coupled with the fact that most of the folks that are out there in the economy haven't been able to consume services, travel, leisure, other things the way that they would. And so there's been a tremendous transfer, if you will, of spending from services, which historically has been a larger portion of the economy than, than goods, into the, into the retail and goods arena. And that has benefited the retail space in a pretty unprecedented way. Second thing I would say is that despite the shift that we've seen across the economy and the acceleration of that shift to e-commerce, there continues to be a, a pretty strong dominance uh, in terms of the numbers for in-person bricks and mortars retail locations. And that we see them develop their own, if you will, omni-channel approach. But overall, many small stores and certainly the larger stores are really getting in the e-commerce game themselves. 
And when they have that and they also have the synergy of the in-person, they oftentimes find themselves to be in the best position uh, of all, having both reinforced one another. And so there's still a lot of hope, I think, for the future of the the local retail, whether it be the the larger bricks and mortar, um, whether it be possibly a mall being reconfigured into a, a more modern type of set of amenities and, and experience, or whether it even be the mom and pop stores that we all continue to frequent and probably appreciate now more than ever, frankly. And then the last thing I would say is that the pandemic is going to continue, unfortunately, for some time. And certainly we don't expect to see the kind of rebound in travel and leisure that we have already experienced in retail for at least another year or so. And over that period, we're going to continue to see the significant transfer of focus on consumer outlays into the retail space. And in keeping with what Mark described for this Christmas holiday season, we're going to see some pretty big numbers probably out of retail. And so there continues to be some outsized investment opportunities for portfolios in the retail space, which we continue to focus on here at Wilmington Trust as investors. So, Mark, I want to thank you again today for being here. Um, you really bring a very special set of experience and insights into this space. It's my pleasure, Tony. Thank you so much for having me. And I want to remind our listeners how important it is to have their portfolio and wealth plan stress tested to see how they stand up, especially during the times of unprecedented uncertainty that we're experiencing now, whether it be an inflation shock, whether it be another GDP shock, if we have the closing of the economy, we have the ability to, to look at portfolios and see how they would stand up given past historic precedents in lots of different kinds of situations. And we think that's increasingly important given the uncertainty that we continue to face for, for clients to engage in. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I encourage you to visit WilmingtonTrust.com for a roundup of our investment and planning content. You can subscribe to Capital Considerations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast channel to ensure you get updates on future episodes. Thank you again for listening. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. The information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. Our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. Investing involves a risk and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to professionals in other business areas of Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank 
and may provide to seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. As a result, M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of or other obligations of or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, M&T Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risk, including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of M&T Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, M&T Bank, Wilmington Trust Company, WTC, operating in Delaware only, Wilmington Trust NA, WTNA, Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors, Inc., WTIA, Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC, and Wilmington Trust Investment Management, LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial agency, investment management, and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through M&T Bank Corporation's international subsidiaries. Loans, credit cards, retail, and business deposits, and other business and personal banking services and products are offered by M&T Bank, member FDIC. 2021 M&T Bank Corporation and its subsidiaries, all rights reserved.